Hello, and welcome to the Unique CPA with your host, Randy Crabtree. We're committed to creating a thriving community of accounting professionals who are physically and mentally healthy, fulfilled, and energized by their work. Our ultimate goal is to elevate the reputation of the accounting profession and vastly improve the lives of those in it. The Unique CPA is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, our guest is Ed Kless. Ed, well, there's about a thousand things I could probably list that Ed does, and I will have him expand on a few of those in addition. But uh, where I originally knew Ed was from is co-host of The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker, a weekly radio show, radio slash podcast. Uh, what would you call them both, Ed? Yeah, I would say both because we, we, we are broadcast live on Voice America. Not Voice of America, by the way, Voice America. So Voice America. Talk radio. So, yes. All right. Well, I let you jump in early just because I asked you a question, but Ed, welcome to the Unique CPA. <laughs> Thanks so much, Randy. I appreciate <laughs> you having me on. All right. Well, this is a, this is a lot of fun. I, I, like I said, I've, I've known of you for a long time. Your name's obviously out there in our profession. But if you could do me a favor, I gave you a little bit of an intro with, uh, you know, Ron and Soul of Enterprise and what you're doing there. But I know if I look at LinkedIn, there's a lot of things listed. You want to yeah. give us a little more background? So, yep, many of those things that are listed on LinkedIn are not actually anything official. They're just titles that I have made up for myself over, <laughs> over the years. I've, I've been at Sage. That's my day job is I work for Sage. And it will be 20 years this coming July, which wow. I'm amazed at every time I, I think about that. And maybe I shouldn't shouldn't jinx it. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so I know you have, uh, before we started recording, you said you talked a lot of, or thinking about a lot about Simon Sinek's work. Yep. And so let me give you my why. Because uh, I think that 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 could be a good place for us to launch yeah, from. Yeah, for but sure. My why is that I believe that entrepreneurs continue the work of creation, mm-hmm. and I don't care if you think of creation as six days in a garden and one day of rest, as an explosion out of nothingness thirteen point eight billion years ago. Whatever you got, turtles all the way down. I whatever you got for your creation thing, entrepreneurs continue the work of creation. And I think it's important for us to, to know that. And I put it into practice every day in three capacities. One, I work for Sage and I do that work. I also work with our partner organizations and our partner organizations. I have a very broad definition of partner that can be the people who, well, I guess they, they used to resell our software. Now they just sell it's it's sell through because it's all subscription, right? So they sell our software, but then also our recommender. So our Sage Intact uh, Accountants Program, as well as our SAN Network, Sage Accountants Network. So the folks who are just recommenders of our product. And then thirdly, and I've been involved in this to some degree or another, and sometimes more, sometimes less, directly with our customers, because most of our customers are entrepreneurs as well. So there was an episode of Cheers where Norm gets a beer tasting job. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it, it turns out terrible for him. But but uh, for, for me, it's great because I do one job and I get three times the benefit because I'm helping Sage, I'm helping our partners, and I'm helping our customers. And I just love that experience and what I'm able to do. Now, my day job involves mostly working with our partner organizations on helping them make their businesses better, their business models better, which it, hence why I call myself a meta consultant, right? That's the, I, I consult to people who do consulting. 
So hence the the idea of, of meta, because I consult about <laughs> consulting. Right. I consult yep. about like, how do you best consult? <laughs> wow. All right. That's now I'm getting that. That's his way over my head. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it's like I just came up with that and I, I put that on there. I also have, I think, corporate iconoclast on there. And yes. that is a, the breaker of I, these ideas that I think are, are really bad. In fact, Ron Baker and I do a presentation and it, it changes over the years to what they are. But there's the top 10 business myths. And we try to smash those myths. And w- one of the ones that is probably most related to your audience, uh, especially those of you who are still billing by the hour there, is that price does not come from cost. Price does price not, does not co- Price from. is not a function of okay, cost. Okay, got it. Yep. Right? Price is not a function of cost. Price is a function of the value that one creates outside the organization. You can get a price for something and then your prices justify your costs, but they don't derive from your cost. And I think that there's an example of breaking an icon that is stuck in people's minds. You know, you talk to accountants, they're all like, well, how do we, how do we know that we're going to be profitable on this engagement, on this job with this customer? And I'm like, who cares? (laughs) It's not about being profitable on every single engagement. In fact, if you try to be profitable on every engagement, you're going to be less profitable overall. Because it means that you're not going to take the the right risks to be able to go into and find customers where you're going to be able to have have some really large profits. Right. Because you only want to get a, a risk free return or a lower risk return on your investment. So I said a lot there. I'm sorry. I could I, no. I probably could just talk 20 minutes and. Yeah. <laughs> No, this end is, of episode. <laughs> believe me, you can talk twenty minutes. I'd be completely fine with it because right, I'm right now. I'm just you see me leaning closer and closer to the camera. I'm just like intrigued with everything you're saying here. But I do have a question, and you can keep going on this. But I do have a question based on that. So, so say it again. Price is not price does not derive from cost. It's not a function of cost. Okay. So now, are you saying that just in professional services? Or are you saying that across, across the board? The board. Okay. Absolutely across the board. Price is not derived from cost. Prices justify the expenditure of cost. Let me give you a non-accounting uh, example. So yeah, this is a, a fun one. So you mentioned my friend Ron Baker, and he's got this. This his one of his favorite wines is this Farniente Estate Bottled Cabernet. And if you go to visit the Farniente, by the way, is great is a great marketing name because Farniente in Italian means do nothing, <laughs> which is a, just a great name for a winery. Like right? Yep. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's marketing lesson number one: say it in a different language, and you know, it <laughs> sounds more. Right? So Chez Louis as opposed to Louis's place. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, by the way, Hagen Das means nothing. There's no. It doesn't mean anything in There's any language. Not, it's just they a just, made they up just, word. It sounded like good ice cream. <laughs> okay. But uh, so Farniente has this estate bottle Cabernet. It goes for like $350, $400 a bottle. And if you go on the tour with Ron, uh, they, they'll take you through. And they have other other vintages. They do some whites, and, and but, but they're less expensive. They're like $60, $70 a bottle. I mean, it's all high-end stuff. But you'll get to the point on the tour where they'll talk about the estate bottled Cabernet and and then they'll tell you the story of why this wine is so expensive. And they'll say, well, the reason is because the grapes for this that we use to make this wine are very delicate and they bruise easily. So we have to handle them, you know, specially and, and, the, and the harvesting is well, takes a lot longer to do that. And when we press the grapes, which, by the way, is bruising them. I don't understand, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we have to, and then when we bottle it, 
The reason why we even call it estate bottled is because instead of going to the normal bottling plants that we usually send our other the wines to, this one we have to hand bottle and we hire extra laborers to come in and hand bottle and we put a special cork in it that you know doesn't shake the bottle. And when we send it out to you, we don't send it out to you in, in, in one case of 12, we send it in two cases of six. So we put extra packaging in because it bruises easily. I'm like, Liquid bruises, right? <laughs> so they're going through this whole story, and like, and, and, and you can see because all of this added production cost is why this wine is so expensive. And you're like, you're, you're looking at me. That, that's bullcrap. That's that's not true right. at all. The reason why this wine is four hundred dollars a bottle is because wine geeks like Ron Baker are willing to pay four hundred dollars a bottle for it. They value it at more than four hundred dollars a bottle. Right. And because they get that, then they justify the costs of bringing in the added laborers. So prices justify costs. They don't derive from cost. And that seems to tie in with what I've been reading with Simon Sinek, too. It's just, you know, they've created this brand awareness. People are are flocking to it. They're they're part of a community of I can't say the name of the, the winery, but that's, say it again. What's the Far name? Farniente. 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 I might have said it right. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> we can edit. Justin, you can edit that. Make it sound right if I said it wrong. <laughs> Um, and and they, so they've created this, you know, people are following it. It's like, you know, they probably put their why out there and, and now people are intrigued by that and following it. That's pretty cool. Because when I was thinking that, and you're, you gave me a great example, when I was thinking that, I was like, okay, it feels like most restaurants are, you know, pricing is based on, you know, 30% of cost or whatever the number is. Um, and, and that can be, but if you can show that there's some additional value there, and that's what we're getting at, right? The value. Yes. And, and th this is another thing that's, that's important to note on this is that value to the customer, it can't be broken into smaller parts. So you talked about a restaurant. If you go out to a, a, a restaurant and the, you know, the, the meal is wonderful, but in the middle of your dinner, a cockroach runs across your table, mm -hmm. you're <laughs> going to find this place repulsive, right? Right. So, but, and likewise, it might be the cleanest place in the world, absolutely spotless. But if the food's terrible, right, it destroys the experience. So you can't parcel down value. As a customer, we don't parcel down value into its subcomponent parts at all. As a customer, we, we, we accept it as a whole. But yet on the other side, we think we can parse out the value and cost on our side, even though it's completely irrelevant to yeah. the customer. Yeah, right. Right. And to take it to the accounting firm level, you're partner's time isn't worth any more than a junior's time to the customer if the answer is wrong or if you blow the the, the advice or whatever it right. is <laughs> doesn't matter yeah doesn't matter whether the numbers were wrong or the partner gave the wrong advice it's still the same thing to the customer so you call this perceived value or reality of value or is there a definition of how the customer values perception of value as that actually is it, it, and if you want to really delve into this it's called the subjective theory of value value is subjective value is what the customer says it is okay and there is no theory of value that says we can actually total it up and equate it and look this is an important thing for value to be subjective because if it weren't we, we wouldn't innovate Right. So value has to be subjective. And this goes back to what's called the marginalist revolution in economics in the late 70s, because they look, even Adam Smith fell victim to the labor theory of value. 
the labor theory of value says that the value of something is equal to the amount of labor that it takes to put the thing together. And by the way, you know who is a big proponent of this, by the way? Nope. An, an economist from the 1840s and 50s. You might have heard of him, Karl Marx. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have. <laughs> big fan of the labor theory of value. So I like to really? say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I like to say that if you build by the hour, you are a practicing Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so everybody out there, remember that. It's time to value your subscription. It is undeniable. <laughs> yep. It is undeniable. If you bill by the hour, you are using one of Marx's theories, the labor theory of value. Now, here's the crazy thing, Randy. Marx didn't believe that value was evil. What did Marx believe was evil? Begins with a P. Uh, the bottom of the financial statement. Profit. profit. Oh. Profit was evil. All right. Right? Because it was the exploitation of the worker. All right. So think about this. You got people out there who are using a guy's theory who thought profit was evil in their business where they're trying to guess what? Make a profit. All right. <laughs> All right. Now I'm. It's incongruous. Now, now, now I am completely confused. No, I'm not confused. <laughs> this is uh, all right. So let's. Well, there, um, there should be. There should be. I think for all of us, there should. Be, I mean, because when I first heard this, I was blown away yeah. by this. So there should. There should be some cognitive dissonance, as Simon Sinis talks about. Right. So there should be this. Wait a minute. <laughs> what I my belief about what was isn't right. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> so we need to change everything that we're thinking because we're billing based on something that doesn't have any relativity to what the customer, the client is looking customer for. Customer doesn't care. And, and none of us, if you walk into a Starbucks, none of us, none of us care about the cost structure of the people we buy from. No. None of it. You walk into a Starbucks, you don't go, I really hope they have their cost structure figured correctly. <laughs> we do not. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> what do you care about? The price. Right. Right. Yep. Is the price acceptable to you? Now, you can pay your $5 for your cup of coffee at Starbucks, or you could go to Dunkin' Donuts and for the same $5, get, you know, two donuts, right. <laughs> orange juice, <laughs> and coffee for the same $5. So the, is the price acceptable? But the real thing is, is what is your value of it? And Starbucks right. customers are not necessarily Dunkin' Donuts customers, and that's all okay. People are, we, we can go to McDonald's or Ruth's Chris and People would be very confused if you walked into a Ruth's Chris and were expecting McDonald's prices. Right, right. <laughs> so for the Starbucks, then, I perceive that value of that coffee, whether it's better or the service is better or the atmosphere is better or whatever it the is. Experience. The experience is yep. better. That's why I'll pay the $5 rather than for one coffee rather than the $5 for one coffee and two donuts or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's the perceived yep. value that I get. So there's something there's something that I enjoy about Starbucks up and above. Not it doesn't even The coffee can be the same. I assume in that case. And you make the coffee at home for even less than you can get it at, at Dunkin' Donuts. Right. All right. So this is amazingly intriguing to me. Um, I had mentioned to you before the show that I, I screwed up on the time and I thought we had, had another half hour to prepare for this. So I, I didn't write down a lot of notes, but man, this is a path that is just intriguing to me. So so let's now transition from this, just pricing in general and value in general and perceived value. And then how, and you touched on it a little bit, we were getting to how this affects accounting firms, uh, professional service accounting in general. Let's dig deeper into that then, because you know I've been in public accounting for 35 years and from day one, it was you know tracking hours and, and billing by the hour. And, and I know uh, you and Ron have been uh, fighting against this for a long time. And, and so let's kind of get into that. What, how do we use this new knowledge that you're giving us to you know structure our pricing different or run our practices different? What would be this next step, I guess? So you actually use the two key words in your question. Mm -hmm. 
you said professional service firm, and then you asked me to give you the knowledge. Yep. And that's the key is understanding that what an accounting professional provides is not primarily service, but knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right. And once you make the leap to understand that your customers are not buying primarily services from you, but instead knowledge, then it becomes obvious that you can't charge for that for that by the hour because charging for knowledge by the hour, it's the non sequitur. It's insane. It's it's like trying to measure the doneness of your turkey with a ruler <laughs> instead of a thermometer. I mean, it just it just makes it makes no sense at all because not I can transfer knowledge in five minutes in five hours. I mean, it, 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 it depends, right. Right. right? And so, and it, it depends also how willing you are to accept that knowledge and to and receive that knowledge. So it's completely non-dependent on, on any kind of timing a, right. at all, right? It's more dependent on when is it done as opposed to how long did it take to be done? In other words, it's important from a turnaround time perspective, like I need to have access to the knowledge that you create by the 15th of April. Right, right. <laughs> let's say. Right. But but that so timing is important, but not the number of hours that it takes to get there. To get back to your question now about the the, the transition of firms, you know, I, I think that so many of them are making it a transition from even billing by the hour, which is billing for inputs, to beyond even value pricing and toward this new realm called subscription Mm -hmm. pricing. Um, In fact, Ron Baker's new book is called Time's Up, and it's about moving professionals to the subscription economy. If I could, I could give a a plug for some free stuff. Yep. So it's not going to cost you anything, but he just created a website called timesupclub.com. So Time's Up Club, you can join the, the club at the free forever level, and it is free forever. And one of the things that you get is audio chapter summaries. It's not the audio book. It's, uh, it's, it's actually Ron and I talking about each chapter. Oh, cool. Which is kind of fun. So, so if you want to go out and, and visit that page, that great. But when we think about subscriptions, what we're really selling in, in the subscription economy is beyond even experience like Starbucks. Because after all, Starbucks is dependent on you coming to them. Yep. To, for the coffee and even for the experience, but rather subscription is about serial transformations. So in other words, transforming the person th- that you're working with over and over and over again, repetitively, whether they're selling their business, whether they're starting a business, whether they're trying to get their kids through college, whether they're trying to ad- advance their careers, whether they're trying to expand their business, contract their business, level up. We're selling actual transformations of people. Mm-hmm. And we believe, Ron and I believe that this is best priced on a subscription basis, not even on a value price basis. What we're looking for is to have a you know a, a periodic, repetitive, frictionless payment for serial transformations. That's what we're looking to have happen. That is a change to the fundamental business model. Right. I'm not just delivering a tax return or a financial statement. Mm-hmm. I'm helping you be successful, or I'm helping you transform, transform. In- into whatever it is. Peace of mind. Peace of mind. I can send my kids to college. I can retire someday. You're going to be there for me. You're going to, whatever it is, it's uh, you know all these different steps in my life, my career, my business, my family, my whatever. You as my subscription pricing partner mm-hmm. are going to be there for me to do these, all these uh, steps along the transformation of my career. Right. So you're effectively selling financial health. That might be one way to think about yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So 
here's my question on subscription pricing, because obviously this is not whatever, 90 something percent of the, the uh, accounting firms out there are not doing this, right? Or do you have a percentage on how many have started? No, and it, it's very few. Some of them think they're doing subscription, but by the way, here's what subscription is not. Yep. Taking your annual price and dividing it by 12. Right, all right, yes. <laughs> okay, right. Not subscription. <laughs> because one, you're not adding perceived value in there in that case, is that Correct, it? correct. And what it is, Ron and I have stolen a term from Walt Disney. We call it plussing the offer. Yep. Think about it this way. What would you charge for if the services were considered free? What would you charge for if the services were Services were considered free. Oh, I get it. So what's the outcomes that you really want? Outcomes and security. So quick example. Yep. If you're doing taxes, a subscription model taxation would likely have the following included in it. Not only are we going to provide your tax return, but we're going to give you a tax plan for the coming year as part of it. It's, yep. it's just, and if you're audited, we got you covered. You're going to pay whatever it is. I, I'm just making up a number just to $500 a month, $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And if you're audited, we got it covered. Yep. Yep. There's, we're not going to charge you for the audit. So we've got tax return, tax planning, audit defense mm-hmm. for a subscription subscription pricing of $1,000 a month in this scenario, and they're covered. Now, so that was one of my questions then. When I'm doing subscription pricing, there's still a you know a menu of services you're going to get for that, I assume. It's not, all right, $1,000 a month, and now you can call me at 3 a.m., and we can talk about anything. No, no, we can talk about everything that's covered. Let, so again, let me ju- jump outside the accounting profession as sure. an example. Yep. All right, because and, and then we can, we, we can reapply it afterwards. Sometimes it's better to think abstractly for sure. and, and then come back. So there's a movement right now in the medical profession called direct primary care, DPC docs. And what these these folks are is they are, they are creating practices that are subscription-based that do not accept insurance. It's usually a monthly payment of, you know, somewhere between $50 and $100 a month is, is what most of them that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And what you get is everything that that physician is capable of doing in-house. You are covered for everything that they are capable of doing. Now, not many people know this, but any any doctor, any MD is technically allowed to perform brain surgery. Hmm. Like there's nothing, there's nothing from a legal constriction to say that they can't perform brain surgery. Right. Now, there's not a hospital in the world that's going to let anyone do it in their hospital. No, no. <laughs> because the hospital has protection. But and let me get back to DPC. So we have this guy, Dr. Paul, he's been on our radio show a couple of times. He's got a practice in South Detroit uh-huh. and he covers all of his patients. Now here's interestingly enough, he's got an x-ray machine. He does sutures. He's got a pharmacy on site. So he's constantly adding stuff that is part of his coverage. Plussing? Plussing. Huh? Look at plussing that. Look at you experience. teaching me. There right. you go. <laughs> right. So he's plussing the experience. He does house calls. Oh, by the way, his his office does not have a waiting room. Okay. Well, does that not mean- have a waiting room because they, you don't you don't have to wait to see Doctor Paul. You just come in. Okay. And now he might have two people, three people That's at the same ask. time, and they have they have multiple exam rooms that he's going to visit you as. But there's always going to be somebody who's going to be with you at any one time, because the typical general practice doctor in the United States has a patient role of about 2,500 patients. 
Dr. Paul has set his maximum at 500. I was going to ask that. I figure it had to be you're serving less. So 20%. Yep. But he talks about this. It's, it's amazing because he says, look, I'm making the same money as I would if I had 2,500 patients and I had to serve the system of insurance. I don't have to deal with insurance companies. I can actually practice medicine the way I wanted to, which was actually to help people. I had a patient come into my office and wanted to talk to me and read poetry to me for a half hour. And I was like, great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. <laughs> right. Now, it, you know, he's going to be pulled away for something else. He's not going to listen to the, but what does it, you know, he, he says, I'm, a, I'm able to, to serve these people in the capacity that a doctor was supposed to serve them. Right. And it wasn't about how many more can I fit in? How many can I slam in? But again, Anything that he does in his four walls or outside, because he does house calls, that's covered. But if you have, if you, God forbid, get cancer, that's not covered. Dr. Paul is not going to be an oncologist. Right. Right. So I think the same thing can be true. You can, we can have a general practice tax accountant, right? Okay. Here's where you're, you're covered for anything re regarding tax. Maybe it's, it's personal tax. Once you bring corporate tax in, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do corporate taxes. We're going to leave that to somebody else who can have subscription for corporate taxes. Maybe there's a bigger mega firm that does both personal and corporate taxes. I, I don't know. There's lots of models right. that you can build around this. But anything that you are capable of doing, because I think one of the big things that uh, uh, accountants especially, they fall victim to, is just because an accountant is theoretically capable and it is allowed to do it legally, they do it. And they do the financial equivalent of performing brain surgery on people when they shouldn't be. I agree with that. So I've talked about this before and just I'll, I'll cut in for a second because before I started Trimerit and people have heard this, it's a specialty tax firm. We were very niche, which I think mm -hmm. is extremely important uh, for me at least. And I think yeah. for a lot of practitioners, I think it's extremely important. Doesn't mean that I couldn't or a general practitioner couldn't know that there's other services that are available, but just create a relationship with somebody that I can refer someone to. So for me, when I ran my business, my firm from, I don't even know what year, from 1988 until 2006, we were generalists. We were probably trying, like you just said, to, to do brain surgery when we shouldn't be doing brain surgery. It took me a long time to realize that. But when we started Trimerit, I just saw the difference there. It's like, I don't have to know everything. I, I can know something exists. I don't have to be an expert at it. I know other people that can do these other things. And, and that's so important. So I like that, the way you define that, the way you show that, hey, you know, just because you can do brain surgery doesn't mean you should do brain surgery. Same thing in accounting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think sadly, many firms, especially some of the smaller ones, fall victim to it. But I think it plagues even the midsize and larger firms, even some of the top 100 firms. Yeah. They're like, well, this is revenue. Why should we turn this away? Right. Because you're not an expert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. And you're, di you're doing a disservice to your client at this case. I mean, simple thing like, you know, just partnership returns. They are way more complicated than most people think. And everybody's mm -hmm. going to do a partnership return. And I was just talking to somebody a week or so ago, and he said, I don't know if he's exaggerating, he said 99% of the partnership returns out there are wrong. And he's probably right that the big percentage are just because you're a CPA, you have a tax preparer, an EA, doesn't mean you're an expert at partnership returns because there's a lot of complexities there. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So let's go back then to the whole, okay, the things that I can uh, deliver, I'm going to, and how about the things I can't then? Then what do I do? Is that Am I still the go-to in the subscription model that then I'm going to send you somewhere else? 
you can do one, a couple of different things, but one is, is that you might serve as the project manager or engagement manager. We say, I will find somebody who will handle this for you. Right. And then you can either contract through your organization and be a pass through, or just say, I'm going to make like docs do, I'm going to make you a recommendation for a specialist. Yep. Okay. So you're still going to be that go-to. You're still going to be the, is it tax preparer? You're going to still be, which I think we are the most trusted advisor that you're, they're almost always going to come to you first, but now they know that you, you're not the expert at everything, but you're going to have information available. Right. But I think, and this is, I think this is a potential future model too. Think about this. So say Dr. Paul, and maybe there's this DPC movement completely takes off and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of these docs across the country. What if these DPC docs started subscribing to specialist organizations? So in other words, they subscribe to an oncology group. They subscribe to Mm. a cardiology group. They, the doctors do, and then offer that as a plus service back down to their customers as included in their subscription to them. Right. So the accountants could do the same thing. So you could have whatever specialty you are, but your firm can be subscribed to the partnership organization or the audit group or whatever this is. And you could either act as a pass-through or conduit for that and then offer that as a, quote, plus offering down to your customer because you've got someone who will do that. Right. So Ron's been on the show a couple of times and Ron and I, uh, uh, Ron Baker, I assume mm-hmm. everybody knows who we're talking about, but uh, Ron and I both got to speak at a, an event last fall. And every time I, I talk to him, I hear him, I'm thinking, okay, so in our business, could we do that? You know, we're especially tax provider. So in my mind, you know, our clients are not the CPA firms, not the accounting firms, our clients are their clients that they send us to and we do work for their clients and then get them the information. But could I create a model where the tax preparer subscribes to us and then now they just can offer these services to their clients because they have access to us and we're going to do anything. The problem is for me, and you can maybe, this is the question, Mm-hmm. You know, I deal with a sole proprietor. I deal with a you know a top twenty CPA firm. You know, the number of clients that a top twenty CPA firm can send to me is going to be a lot more significant than a sole proprietor. Do I have to change my subscription based on who's subscribing to me if I were able to do this, or how? Do, how would that? And and then equating that to the accounting firm, you know, I'm going to have people with different levels of, of need. Sure. And the answer is maybe you'd have to, you have to play it through because in this gets back to your niching idea is yep. like, you know, who, who is the focus? Who, who do you look at? I mean, Tim Williams, who's a, another a member of the Veris Agents too, that Ron founded, I'm a, a fellow at his, he's a marketing guy. He says, look, you can be one of two things. You can be, you can be moderately appealing to a large group of people, or you can be intensely appealing to a small group of people. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. And th- that that's the only two marketing strategies. That's it. All right. Right. Walmart and, you know, selling yellow bows. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. But it, it's also, you know, Hewlett Packard and Apple. Right? right. Apple is intensely appealing to a smaller group of people. Yep. Oh, intensely. <laughs> For right? sure. There's we're, we're zealots. I got yeah. my Apple devices all over the place here. Yep. And but they and they don't want it. Now, and, and, and this gets to a whole another one of the myths, by the way, which is the whole market share myth. Apple has about 40% of the market share in c- cell phones and smartphones. Okay. That's significant. That seems very Worldwide. significant. It's significant. Yep. Okay. Yep. They have 85% 
of the prophet. Really? Uh-huh. All right. Because they have this intense following. And there's only one other company that sells smartphones that even makes a profit, and that's Samsung. All of the others, I'm talking Huawei, like they're subsidized by the Chinese company. They, they don't make a profit. They actually right. lose money really? on their cell phones. All right. Because they're also selling, wrapping the service in, which is a different model. Yep. Point being, though, like, you know, people like, oh, people, no one would pay a thousand dollars for a phone. Yeah, we do it all the time now. And, you know, and, and by the way, the last thing I use my iPhone for is a freaking phone. <laughs> I agree. Yep. <laughs> yep. That is true. It's just a computer or whatever. It's a community. Yeah, it's, it's a, a, you know, it's a, it's the, the thing I grab in the morning to see what the weather is. And then, yep. you know, I'm, then I move on to my iPad and then finally my desktop. And then, you know, but I'll even grab different devices for different uses during the day. It's weird. Like, yep. I, you know, I only check the weather on my phone. Yeah. I can check it on the iPad. I, I can agree. check it on the computer, but I'm I check the, the weather on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> I already did that this morning. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, so getting back to your question about this, we have to be decide where our market belongs. Where are we going after? Because I mentioned McDonald's and Ruth's Chris. It's impossible to be McDonald's and Ruth's Chris. Right. It's even more impossible to be McDonald's and Ruth's Chris and a vegan restaurant. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Nope. Because the vegans not going to be happy that you even exist with the other two things. Oh, no. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's what you have to look at with regard to your, the, the customers that you serve. Who are you going after from a target perspective? It's much better, to, I think, to go narrow than it is to go broad. I see what you're saying. I'm still confused because each, okay. of those, each of those have clients that need our help, but the client can be the same. So that's why ours is, in my mind, a little different. So maybe I'm confusing it with what we do because we support tax preparers and I can have a sole preparer that has a $100 million manufacturer that needs my help. And I can have a top 20 CPA firm that has a $100 million manufacturer that needs my help. And so that the end user can be the same. It's just that middleman's different. And that's maybe where I'm confusing it a little bit. Well, no, but but that can be, in fact, my, my wife works for a company that does themed events. Like, you know, if you have a, having a conference or whatever at casino night, that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. Right. And the guy who is the star- who started this firm, his name is Gary, super guy. And I know him for almost, I guess, 25 years now or so. But we had lunch, I don't know, when he first started the business. Well, it wasn't when he first started. It was actually, if he was business about five years old. He said, Ed, it took me five years to figure out who my customer was. Right. Because I thought I was selling to like the sages of the world when Sage would come into Dallas and have a, a conference. He said, I, it, it took me five years to figure out that there are these companies called destination managers that manage the local conference in the local area. And this is the equivalent of your large firm versus going direct to the customer type thing. Yep. So what he decided was, and he literally, he literally spun off the company into two entities, one that did serve the individual, but then the other one that was actually serving the, the uh, destination management people. Because it's yep. two different audiences. It's two different marketing strategies. The end customer is the same. The, uh, it's the event that get, comes to Dallas. Right. But the go-to market had to be different because it was a different channel. Let's uh, think of it that way. That's, that's I like that. Yeah. yeah. And it was a different marketing message to one channel right. versus the other. <laughs> and what he said, he didn't want to create confusion in the marketplace. So he separated the brands. I like that a lot because, you know, can I equate that to that? So, so I've kind of felt like we've done this, you know, so people heard my story before, but bottom line is 
I don't even know how many years ago, six years ago, I gave up managing, managing partner role at Trimerit and really start concentrating on the unique CPA more. Mm-hmm. Trimerit was a top 400 CPA firm. That was our audience, mm-hmm. you know, which is still a big range. I mean, yeah. you, you got, but that's, but that's bigger firms. Unique CPA has attracted, I think, those bigger firms, but that's also attracted a lot of smaller, modern startup firms that I think is a big part of our audience. And so it's almost like we we market in two different ways. You know, Trimerit, I'm out speaking at big association events, and then the Unique CPA is, you know, I'm getting in front of these smaller, modern firms. So I guess we're kind of doing that man, you're educating me left and right here today. <laughs> so so it's kind of like we're doing that. It's just a matter of, do we just completely separate that, which I've been thinking about doing anyways, mm-hmm. and figure out the marketing plan for each separately and run them as separate businesses. Yeah. All right. Again, at the beginning, before we went live, I said, as long as I feel like I'm learning something, I figure other other people, this might just be all selfishly me today. I'm just one of which you are educating everybody else, but it's like, I'm thinking directly for me. So, so, so Randy, should, you should know that Ron and I had the same strategy about our radio show, yep. which is, it's basically just people that Ron and Ed want to talk to. Yeah, like, right. It, and people say, well, are you, aren't you an accounting podcast? Oh, no. If you listen to our show and you think we're an accounting podcast, you are solely mistaken. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, nope. you don't even have accounting in the name. But I can't no. believe people would think that. I guess it's just based on the uh, the books and that that, that yeah. come out and you working with Sage and mm-hmm. all of this background in the profession. All right. So so we should probably try to kind of wrap up the whole, you know, accounting, subscription pricing. We went on a lot of tangents. I guess if you were to, you know, if I give you, you know, five minutes, three minutes, whatever you need right now, tell mm-hmm. us what do they need to do and how should they dip their toe? I mean, do you dip your toe in and do you go full force or what would be the next step for someone if they want to start subscription pricing? I, I think, well, buy Ron's book, um, or, <laughs> you know, because I'm not really, and really, I do think that it, it's a distillation of a lot of great thinking. Uh, the other thing that you can do, even for free, you don't have to buy Ron's book, but if you, it, the radio show, The Soul of Enterprise, with, if you go to the, thesoulofenterprise.com, at the top, there's a, a categories tab. And if you click on categories, one of them is subscription. If you click on that, you'll see all of the shows that Ron and I have done with where we've interviewed uh, Teen So, who's the author of the book Subscribed, mm-hmm. Robbie Kelman Baxter, who wrote The Forever Transaction, Ann Jenzer, who wrote Subscription Based Marketing. So there's a lot of material that's out there that you can listen to for free that will be able to get you up, up to speed on some of this stuff. But with regard to what, what they do next, it's really, first of all, is to stop thinking of yourself as service. I said this earlier, I know, but it's so important yep. to, to make the, the lead between understanding that you do not sell service, you sell access to or transfer of knowledge. And you've got to get that through your head first before right. you can process it for and do anything with it. Because if you're stuck in the idea that we sell service, you're, you're going to be forever mired in that, that way of thinking. So it, yep. is a, it is a completely different mindset. Um, so that's my words of encouragement on that is to think differently about that. Yeah, so they have the the next step we have to do another show on just then coming up with the subscription pricing uh, models and inclusion of services and the I- exclusion of services and how we rate contracts and how and I know a good friend of mine and she was at this event Ron and I talked uh, at uh, last fall Dawn Brolin and she's been talking about the whole 
relationship pricing she's doing now, which is, you know, I don't know if she defines it any different, but it sounds very similar. And it's based on, you know, what she's heard you and Ron mm-hmm. say in the past as well. But I've been following her progress with this and it's really becoming a, a very positive for her and her clients. And we didn't even talk about this. You mentioned it with the doctor, but he's probably making, and you did say this, he's making as much now with 500 patients as he would have with 2,500 patients. I'm guessing he's even working less with 500 patients. Well, yeah. 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 You know, sum, sum this up, work less, make more money. I don't see what the problem is. I don't see who's, it's, it's like, but if I, let me just uh, uh, summarize it this way. This might be more helpful as a wrap is, yep. is to say that in the past, when you're billing by the hour, you are pricing the inputs, right? You're pricing the inputs yep. in, with value pricing. You're really pricing the output. Yep. But with, with subscription, you're pricing the outcome. The outcome. Right. And I, and I think that that's three different ways of, of thinking about it. And Don's right. that One of the things that, that Ron has talked about is that in value pricing, one of our mantras was price the customer, not the services, right? So you're pricing the individual customer. With subscription, you're not pricing the individual customer. Most of the time, you're, what you're doing is you're pricing either the relationship or another way of thinking about it is you're pricing the portfolio. I want you to think about it almost like a risk pool. Mm-hmm. Again, the whole tax uh, audit, because not every one of your customers is going to be audited every year. Right. That's the point. You're selling yep. in, in, in an insurance model. So you're spreading the risk pool across this larger swath of your customers. <laughs> Someone came to Ron and said, but what if 90% of my customers are audited in the same year? And Ron said, well, if you got 90% of your customers being audited in the same year, you got a problem with the way you are practicing. <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> All right. So so this is great. Uh, don't tell Ron, but you were much better at explaining this to me than he was. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. We worked well, so well together. It's, it's, and I am using a lot of Ron's stories in this. Yeah. And sometimes it, it's just it's it, p- different people appeal to different ways of. That's right. Um, storytelling you just, you guys you guys have become the shared mind duo it's like you you, you you're sharing each other's stories you have this you... <sighs> we 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 share a lot of stuff we do but you know and this is another great line if you th- if you think uh, uh disagreeing with ron is tough try agreeing with him. <laughs> <laughs> it's even harder <laughs> all, right. all right i'll remember that quote um all right well we're, we're running out of time but we have to do this because we do this with everybody Be- so let, yep. let's uh i think we did a good wrap on on that there's a lot of things we can go further in fact you and i maybe we'll schedule another one of these down the road i'd, I'd love to do it but we're going to have to stop talking about subscription pricing and models and all that right now. We got to talk about, you know, when you're not being this meta consultant and this uh, iconalist, uh, whatever, whatever. I, Iconoclast. There, there you, you go. go. Um, what are your what are your passions outside of work? What do you do for fun? How do you stay busy when you're not out there working? Two ways right now. And they're they're 17 and 14. Yep. And that is my my kids. I, my son, who's 17, is uh, on the varsity baseball team and plays on a summer travel team. Oh, yeah. So I, I love to love to go watch him play. And I'm usually the scorekeeper on this thing called Game Changer, which is a whole nother. I know Game Changer. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it is literally a game changer. It is the, the one of the best named apps ever. Yep. But um, so and then my daughter does theater. Both of these things are both my passions growing up. I, I actually uh, minored in musical theater oh, wow. in college. So, All right. 
I love uh, watching them do their thing is my my biggest hobby right now. Oh, yeah. Well, pretty much anybody on the show that has kids that are high school or below, that's pretty much what the answer I get, which makes a lot of sense. Which makes a lot of sense. And, you know, someday this probably will evolve into me, you know, going to back to following baseball myself. Yep. And then also maybe even I, and I have done a little bit of theater in the last couple of years. Uh, after setting it aside for 25 plus. So. Have you really? It's funny. Mm-hmm. Not that I never have acted, never done anything. And I, and I, in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, you know, I would be interested in just seeing if I could do something like that. And there's nobody going to take a 61, almost 61 year old and throw him in some play that I've never acted in my life. But who Go knows? take an improv class. <laughs> yeah. Go take an improv class. You know, uh, uh, Kristen Rampey, I don't know if you're familiar with her. I know she's mm-hmm. done uh, improv and she and yep. I have done a little bit, little teeny bit of improv back and forth because she's trying to teach me how to, you know, this is how it works. I'm like, Oh, I can do that. I mean, when it's her and I, when there's someone else, yeah. maybe not. But all right. All right. Well, we're now we're on tangents. We, we're going to wrap up. Um, Ed, you know, this was great. If anybody wants to you know, hear more, you, you gave a couple of websites already. But if they want to get a hold of you or, or see these websites, what's the best place and where should they look? Yeah. Officially, Sage is ed.kless at sage.com. But uh, I'm the only Ed Kless in the world. My parents were really big into differentiation. Uh, so, right. yeah. I can't, so I'm easy. I'm pretty easy You're to easy find. To just find. look me up. But yes, the soul of is the radio show. I also do the Sage Thought Leadership podcast that's available at sagethoughtleadership.com. And then one last plug for, for Ron's Time's Up book, because I think it's so, so important. So it's timesupclub.com, timesupclub.com. Perfect. And I've got my copy of the book. So I'm, uh, Great. I'll have to admit, I have not read it yet, but Simon Sinek's been taking all my time recently. So now we're going to go to Time's Up. That'll be the next one. Fair enough. Um, all right, Ed. Well, again, thanks for being here. This was awesome. We really look forward to talking again. We didn't even talk about this, but you and I are going to be on a panel together. Uh, uh, well, that's going to be... By the time this runs, we will have done our panel, but the end of the counting today at conference. I'm sure we, we were brilliant. We did awesome. Everybody said it. So. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on the Unique CPA. You can find the show notes for today's episode and learn more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and leave a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting app. And join us next time for more expertise and insights on The Unique CPA. Professionalproductions.net